The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. A reading from selected verses in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, welcome. I add my welcome to Steve. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Aaron. I'm the pastor of youth ministry here at LMPC. And we have arrived at the seventh commandment this morning. Do not commit adultery. And Jesus framed the commandments for us. He said all the law, all the commandments, all the prophets are summed up. And love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And the seventh commandment is right in the heart of the first four showing how we love God, the way God calls us to love him. The next six are saying, here's how we love each other, the way God says love is defined. This is what love actually looks like. And in the midst of that, we have this command, do not commit adultery. So let me pray for us and we'll look at it together. Heavenly Father, would you give grace to us this morning? to the speaker, to the hearer. May your heart for us be so clear and so beautiful that we would throw aside anything that would get between it. Lord, we would run after you because of our time in your word this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So it's helpful really quick to pull back. I don't know if we've done this yet in talking about the Ten Commandments, the Israelites had just spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. Generations of slavery. And in Exodus 1, you can kind of get a picture of it just as recently as Moses' generation. He's about 80, we think, when he started to lead them out. And so he experienced this. They said the Hebrew people are getting to be too many. So let's quote, Pharaoh says, let's make their lives better 
bitter with hard service. Let's ruthlessly work them as slaves, he says. He hoped that would result in fewer children being born. That did not happen. And so then they actually began to take newborn male children from the mother and throw them in the Nile River. Their children forcibly removed and taken. And then uh, in Judges 19, I came across this this week. A story is told later on of the most horrific act of violence and exploitation that I can think of in scripture, of a community against a person. And it's so bad, I won't say it, I won't uh, reference it fully in here, but the response of the people says, nothing as evil as this has happened since the time we were in Egypt. What does that tell you about their time in Egypt? How they were treated, how they were mistreated, children not their own, wives, daughters, not their own, time, not their own. There is no Sabbath. We work from morning till night every day, ruthlessly. You see, they'd only observed human power be used to exploit and disadvantage others for selfish gain. They had not seen humans use power the way God does, disadvantaging himself for the gain and rescue of others. And so, as a way of healing, as they leave Egypt, having been traumatically dealt with, God gives them the law, commands, this is what godly community looks like. This is what power looks like and how it's used for the advantage of others, disadvantaging self, resources to rescue and to save. He's forming new neural pathways in them, things they did not observe or experience for generations. He says, I will not let you repeat the evils that were done to you. So I heard a counselor once, he, he, he referenced the quote that people say, if hurt people hurt people. He says, I don't like that quote. So I'm in the business of watching healed people heal people. God says, I'm gonna rescue you. I'm gonna redeem and restore and heal you so that you might bring healing to the world. Because my healed people heal people. And this is the law that makes that possible. And a lot of people are often overwhelmed by the specificity of the Levitical law. Like it's so detailed and, and specific. But this is a people whose time was not their own. The relationships were not their own. They made no decisions for themselves for 400 years. They were told what to do in abusive ways. And God's saying, I'm resetting it. And I'm showing you what godly community looks like. The law of God brought order, clarity, beauty, specificity. It starts with God and it says true power doesn't serve itself. It uses its resources for the rescue and the good of those in need. Remember, he says, I am the Lord who rescued you who brought you out of the land of slavery. So the 10 commandments, I believe, show us what a God-centered community looks and acts like, how image bearers like us can flourish in this world. Consider the other-centeredness of these commands. Don't take your neighbor's life. Don't take your neighbor's spouse for your own. Don't take your neighbor's land or possessions. Don't take falsely your neighbor's good name and reputation. So when we're leading our middle school students, we're trying to teach like the family of God community idea. One thing we say is, all right, if a hundred people are in a room, 
and everyone's looking out for themselves, how many are looking out for you? One. And if there's 100 people in a room and everyone's looking out for each other, how many are looking after you? You see, that's what God is developing is a community that looks out for one another, that surrounds one another with his love and his words of goodness. In the midst of that community that God has designed, that he has intended us for, he, place, he, he places this commandment, do not commit adultery. So let's define adultery real quick at its most straightforward definition for a married person to engage in physical union with someone they are not married to, for an unmarried person to engage in physical union with someone who's married to someone else. And Jesus is going to add some really helpful commentary to that. In the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to take it far deeper. We'll look at that in just a second. But first, I want to look at that command in that specific and straightforward way in light of this context of the community that we are called to. So let's look at the basis and the rationale for it and the goodness of it. So go back with me, if you will. If you've ever been to, to one of my weddings, this might sound very familiar, and I've been waiting for a sermon to put this all together. Um, go back to the beginning of time, if your mind can do that, where God existed in perfect relationship. It says, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And God says to himself, let us make Man in our likeness, in our image. The images of God saying, this is so good, we need to share it. Augustine says, out of laughter, you were created. Made in the relational image of God to receive love from the Father, where the Father glorifies the Son and the Son glorifies the Father, the Spirit going out between them. You are made to receive that love and give love back to the Father and to others. And if you remember the Genesis account, God made everything. He declared at the end of each act of creating a benediction, a, a good word, saying it is good. But the very first thing we, we see God say is not good, and this is pre-fall. I'm gonna need one of you to explain that to me. Pre-fall, God says it is not good for the man to be alone. And if you remember, he brings before Adam all of the animals in twos and he names them and he realizes there's no one for me and he is lonely before the fall. Now, I don't know, but it seems possible God is trying to uniquely impress upon Adam what he's made for. You were made for a relationship. Now you get it. Go to sleep. And he takes from his very substance, made from the same, for the same, he makes a woman. And he says, the two of you are made in my likeness, man and woman, in the way you reflect me, in the way you relate to one another. You reflect Trinitarian goodness. And the way God describes it, he says, uh, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. And in his proclamation, when he said it's not good that he'd be alone, he says this, I will make a helper suitable to him. And sadly, the word helper has lost all of its meaning in our culture. And it's often like help is some, someone that you get to do the things you don't want to do. It's a demeaning role. It's someone who does all the hard things you don't want to mess with. 
But listen to how the word help is used almost exclusively in the Old Testament. This word for help is used to describe what the Spirit of God does for his people. That's the help that, that is given in this relationship. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit, it gives encouragement and comfort where there's sorrow, joy where there's sadness, strength where there's weakness. It brings conviction where there's sin. It brings spiritual life where there is death. God has given us to each other to be spirit-like in our help to one another. You are like the voice of God bringing his words, his will, his comfort, his love, and the way we are to relate to one another in that context. That's a much better definition for helper. The second word is suitable. That, the Hebrew word for suitable, it literally means like opposite. Someone like you and completely different from you in so many ways. Someone who has strengths where you have weakness, insight where you have confusion, who has understanding, maybe vision where you have blindness, but also who has needs where you have help, where you have strength and insight. And somehow as you live in, rela- in relationship, receiving love from God, sharing that with another in this interdependent care and service, you reflect Trinitarian love and goodness. Jesus affirms that in Matthew 19. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He says, but therefore God has joined together. Let no man separate in Ephesians 5, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh This mystery is profound, he says. And he goes, but I'm not talking about marriage. (laughs) I'm talking about how Christ loves his church. It's profound. So this profound mystery that the covenant faithful love of a husband for a wife is meant to be an incredible image to help us understand how much greater, how much more permanent and full is the covenantal love of Christ for his church. So, the context. Genesis is showing how we're made for covenant, other-centered relationship in marriage. I think the Ten Commandments are showing how we're made for other-centered relationship in community. But these both hinge on the first commandment. I am the God who rescues, who rescued you from the land of slavery. Have no other gods before me. So the call is to worship God alone to receive his love and and then we live in the richness of it as we share with each other. So the 10 commandments really are a way of like bringing covenant renewal back to the people of God. They're taking eternal creational truth. They're making it clear, observable, observable, actionable, and able to be stewarded and protected. He says, my people flourish when they're singular in their worship and when we're singular in our marriage. So that's some of the basis and rationale for this command, for the goodness of it. And hopefully shows that the heart of this seventh command is the honoring and protection 
of the marriage relationship, but even more extensively, covenant relationships. So if the prohibition of the seventh commandment is do not commit adultery or do not seek to take your neighbor's spouse, if we rephrase that into a positive statement in this context, it would be saying this, do everything you can to promote and protect and encourage the marital relationships, and I would say even the covenantal relationships of your neighbors. Think about that. What, what would that look like for us to be called to be the stewards and protectors of our friends and neighbors, marriages and relationships? It made me think, how do I talk about marriage with my friends? How do I speak of it? Do I make condescending jokes? Do I, do I celebrate it? Do I complain or disparage it? How do I counsel a friend when they've had an argument? I remember when I was in seminary, a friend and I were talking and he kind of just in passing made a lame, flippant joke about marriage. I didn't think anything of it. I'm not even sure I even recognized it. He came up to me hours later and he was teary. He said, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry I dishonored my wife. I'm sorry I just dishonored God's view of marriage. I, I was single at the time. He's like, I know you're single. I don't ever want to portray something about this that's just not true. And, and he said, I'm so sorry for how I did that. And I never forgot that. Remember when I came here, as I talked with students, when they're like, hey, let's play another round of Frisbee golf. I was, instead of being like, oh, I can't, I gotta go home to be with my wife or something. I was like, man, I'm gonna go home. I wanna be there when my wife gets home from work. Um, y'all go ahead and play, but I, I'm gonna, like, I did not want to in any way misrepresent what God had made. I learned from how he promoted and protected God's design for us. Do we think like that? How do we promote the health of others' marriages? How they think about it, their commitment with how we talk, how we counsel, how we joke. Let's be even more practical and look at kind of the vastness of our failure and our fight to keep this command. So I've mentioned adultery in the context of the whole community, in the context of marriage, this is how Jesus further develops this command for us in Matthew 5 and 15. He says, chapter 5 of Matthew, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And in Matthew 15, he says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts. And listen to how he labels them, the next ones. Murder, these are the commandments in order. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness and slander. These are what defile a person. It comes from inside of us, from a heart condition. Adultery, the forsaking of the one we've covenanted to for the pursuit of another begins here in the heart. It's where we set our hearts and our minds and our imaginations. It's a nurtured physical or emotional over-desire for another, but also it's one that is betrayed and separated, one God has given. So what fuels lustful intent in the heart? What fuels that heart condition? Maybe a better question, where does an affair begin? I came across a Robert Frost quote a few years ago, and he said this, he said, love is the irresistible desire to be irresistibly desired. 
It's the irresistible desire to be irresistibly desired. What's he saying? Sadly, I think he's saying that in his life experience, in his observations, love was just a longing to be worshipped. It's seeking a sense of self by being wanted or needed, irresistibly so, by another human. A friend showed me an Instagram post recently by an A-list celebrity who just left her A-list husband of a few months, proclaiming that if it stops serving me, I move on. And that's so different from what we see in the Ten Commandments where God starts with commandment number one. He says, love is worshiping God, the God who loved you first and rescued you. And our human relationships are an outpouring of that love to each other. So this desire, this desire to be worshiped instead of give worship, I think is, is at the heart condition where lustful intent begins to grow, where affairs actually begin, idolatry actually begins. In fact, research suggests that the majority of affairs don't just start with physical attraction, but with emotional connection and affirmation. Right, someone you don't have to manage a budget with or manage a house with or those infernal logistics. It's hard to ever annoy them because you don't share the intimacy of a marriage where your brokenness is more visible. You actually feel desirable again in the small part of you you let be seen. So I think that's a call for us to guard our hearts. Don't let someone who's not your spouse become your primary emotional support. Don't seek a core sense of validation and affirmation from those who are not covenantally bound to you. And don't seek to be the primary emotional support of someone who's married. An emotional affair is just as destructive to a covenantal relationship as a physical one in many ways. There's a movie done about adultery and showed the breakdown of a marriage. And kind of the tipping point in the beginning for the husband is he's, he's in the house, he's leaving, the wife asks him to take the trash out again. And this, this has been just a frustrating thing over time that builds, him being solely responsible for the trash and having to take it out. And, and this was kind of the breaking point for him in the movie where you see him grow in a rage and, and kind of, I'm done. And he begins to nurture this other relationship outside the marriage where he gets emotional support, he gets affirmation, gets encouragement. And the whole movie is this battle back and forth for him and it ends with him giving in this other relationship and he sleeps over at this house. And kind of the last scene of the movie as he's leaving and he says goodbye and from the back room of the house he hears, hey, could you take out the trash as you go? What is this non-Christian movie producer portraying? What is he seeing? He's saying that there's there's no intimate relationships that don't have at their core a shared sense of service and other-centeredness and sacrifice. That, that this is the natural progression of intimacy. There's a helper suitable to you. That's what you're made for. As he's running from it, he, he ran up against it again. It's like heart, at his heart, there's a self-centeredness and a service 
So our heart condition can begin with kind of an emotional or this easy self-affirming adoration. But sometimes lustful intent in the heart, as Jesus says, is driven by physical desire. Like we have God-given, normal human sexual desire, and it can get out of control. It can be especially magnified. It can be incited. It can be used against us. Like it's especially magnified when you're deeply hurt when you're really angry, when you're profoundly lonely, you are in danger in those moments. When you feel rejection at school or work, when you, fa- when you failed or face an opportunity to fail in public, the anxiety rises and those desires can get profound and lustful desire can really grow within us. I think one of the great challenges, one of the great fights of Christianity is to not let our weakness and our opportunity collide. Don't let those be in the same place. And to learn to steward our hardships, to learn to steward our difficulties and our suffering, not by scrolling and screens, when we're most vulnerable, when we're actually the most under attack, we're most pursued in those settings with lustful intent. But we, we learn to turn towards others. We learn to go to honest conversations with a covenant friend, to turn towards prayer. But it's not just when we're hurting that we're tempted, even when everything is great. And when we're careless. In our minds and imaginations, we're not directing with intent. We are under attack in those moments. This has never been a more true statement than right now. It's an age where the objectified body and innuendo are the primary medium for marketing, we have to understand that our desires are under assault. It was a deep, a beautiful, a powerful desire that God has given to express covenant faithfulness. It expresses something so beautiful and so true. That desire has been monetized It's been incited, it's been stoked and weaponized to get the money out of your wallet. How do we steward a heart? How do we steward desire? A desire to be worshiped instead of give worship? How do we steward a culture that intentionally stirs our desires in powerful, manipulative, untrue ways? Really, how do we get to participate? In this life-giving community, this human flourishing community, God made us for. Most people who are trapped in lustful addiction didn't seek it out. They didn't want it, and they don't want to be there. They say exposure starts as early as age eight. And it is crippling, and, and they're under attack. How do we live in this culture? We've all been profoundly affected by these ideas. We fight daily for understanding other-centered love or self-centered love. Godly desire and expression or give myself over to lustful intent. How do we manage? I think the answer is the very community that God has called us to steward. So in the last house I owned, I tried to be Mr. Fix-It and do, do all the work myself. And we remodeled our kitchen and I did all the drywall and I was not very good. It was cheap labor, but uh, not well done. And we had a contractor come in and I was just kind of looking around and he just started circling all my failures 
on the ceiling. Just put big pencil marks everywhere, X's through it. It's like, what, 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 are, you, what are you doing? <laughs> He's like, oh, I'm just pointing out all the terrible lines you left everywhere. I'm like, awesome. Okay, well, I guess we will hire you to fix that for me. Um, so he sanded it all out, met him at the door, paid him. We walked in and he left the pencil marks on the ceiling. It was all sanded and perfect, but we're like, man, I got to paint over that, right? And so a couple of weeks, that was going to be my Saturday project. And I just didn't get to it. And then a couple months and a couple of years and seven years. They were up there for seven years, full transparency. Um, but eventually I just quit noticing it. Something that really bothered me for a while, I quit seeing. That's what covenant relationship is like. The only time we noticed it, a friend would come over, they'd walk in the kitchen and immediately be like, what? How did your kids get up? Like, what are they doing? I'm like, no, 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 it's a long story. Um, In covenant relationship, especially in marriage, you don't see, there's things you forgot. These things you quit noticing, they used to bother you. You're like, I want to, I want to grow in that way. I want to, I want to fix that and clean that. And you just kind of, well, it's just kind of the way things are. And someone moves, a loving, sensitive presence moves into your space and they see things and a light shines on things that you quit seeing a long time ago. And you actually then are seeing yourself more as you really are for the first time in a while. And that can be really terrifying. It can happen in a covenant marriage, in a covenant family. It can happen in a small group of men or women that you covenant to do life together with. That stuff's gonna come out. And in that moment, you can be really scared, but if you realize that you are closer to the freedom of the gospel than ever before, in the context of covenant faithfulness, you have two options. Self-protect, hide, blame shift. I didn't see that till you moved in, right? You can lie or you can confess. You can repent. I do, I am that angry. I don't know why that makes me so angry. What am I after? I'm sorry for how that affects you. That lustfulness is, I'm sorry for how that, that affects you. Please forgive me. And you begin to heal in the context of covenant relationship. And for the first time in your life, You're actually fully known and fully loved. If you've ever been a kid and and you're struggling with sin and your parents notice and they're doting on you, right? And they're like, I love you. You're, you know, you're such a sweet kid. You're my favorite, whatever. Don't tell the others. But you're just like, you don't know what I'm doing. Their lack of knowledge means they can't, you can't receive their love. You dismiss it. And the freedom of covenant relationship in the gospel, this is why it's so important that covenant love is permanent because that is where we become like Christ in the ways that we know and love and forgive and outrepent each other. What is that but the gospel? As you do that, you reveal the love of God for his people. How great the Father's love is for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the power for marriage. That's the power for covenantal relationship. That's the way out of lustful addiction. 
that God fully knows you, even the things you won't admit to yourself, and he loves you so that he would die to win you and allow nothing to separate you from his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this topic is so important. And it covers so many areas and so many symptoms, Lord. And at the heart of all of that is our relationship with you, our desire to be worshiped instead of give worship. Lord, may we experience the freedom of the gospel this morning, whether we are struggling currently, whether we have struggled, whether we are going to struggle in the future. We are all on that spectrum somewhere, Lord. We need your grace to be the center of who we are. We need your love to be the thing that defines us, that we are your child, beloved, paid for, ransomed, healed, forgiven. Would you speak those words over us even now? We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.